0: It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses.
1: Element. Element. Element FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm Kathy Sivokin filling in for David Moses. From the panic buying that emptied grocery store shelves in the first weeks of COVID-19 to rising food bank use and food being dumped, and then challenges in securing temporary foreign workers and keeping meat-placked packing plants operational, COVID-19's effect on the food system has been dramatic. And to help us break that down, I am speaking with Evan Fraser. Evan is professor and director of the Arrow Food Institute and Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Global Food Security at the University of Guelph. Welcome, Evan. Hi there. Yes. So a lot has happened over the last several months. And let's just go through the timeline. The pandemic hits and there's a lot of panic buying.
0: Yeah, I mean, my own personal feeling is that after the healthcare system, I think we'll look back at at the food system as probably the part of society most affected or amongst the most affected by by COVID. And we start, we start back with that panic buying you just referred to, where in the early days of the lockdown, uh, consumers, Canadians of all stripes and sorts and sizes said, oh my goodness, we need to have a decent... Well-stocked pantry at home, and and we and we we rushed to the grocery stores and we we bought them out of out of inventory, and that was that was shocking. I mean, it was a terrifying moment for most of us, myself included, as we looked for the first times in our many of our lives, thankfully, at, at empty grocery store shelves. That was actually a relatively small and short-term problem, and inventories I think returned more or less to normal remarkably quickly. Not not perfectly, of course, but but things went back to normal pretty well within ten days.
1: But there are different trends happening. I was in Canadian Tire the other day, and there were still empty shelves as far as cleaning products are concerned. And then we went through the different trends. People are cooking and baking at home, and then the, there are no flour on store shelves. So it seems to still be happening.
0: Yeah, there, there certainly are different changes. I think most of us bought most of our products fairly quickly on Um, But the the second thing that I think we have to be aware of is that as COVID continued, and specifically as the grocery stores picked up all the slack for what the restaurants would have been selling, um, we actually had the supply chains having to reorganize really, really quickly and really fundamentally. And so you're right. Uh, we discovered as the grocery stores um, or the restaurants closed and the grocery stores picked up the slack that, um, you know, our buying habits are subtly different when we eat at home than when we eat in grocery stores and, and, and some, or eat at home versus eating at restaurants. And one of the big ones was potatoes versus baking supplies. So most of the potatoes consumed traditionally in Canada are, are eaten as French fries in restaurants. Uh, so we wasted a tremendous amount of potatoes uh, that went bad because there was no market for them. By the same token, uh, we did a whole lot of home baking in, in April and March. Uh, and, and so the flour supplies uh, were quickly run out. But there was another fun, funny thing that happened in there. And it wasn't necessarily that we didn't have the flour or we didn't have the eggs, but it was the packaging that was actually a limiting feature. So when a gr- restaurant buys eggs, say for, um, for breakfast sandwiches, they would buy flats of eggs, maybe in sort of 12 by 12, um, uh, egg flats, or like a flat of 144 eggs. But when, when you or I buy eggs for home, we usually buy 12 or 18. Okay. And it was actually the packaging for those cartons that was limiting, not the eggs. How so there were some that? weird things as the, as the things shifted.
1: Sorry, how, I was just really curious about how packaging has a difference.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, another big packaging issue wasn't that we were running out of flour. It's that we had difficulty getting uh, the the manufacturers had difficulty getting those two kilogram bags so when a restaurant buys flour or a bakery buys flour they buy huge bags of flour whereas when again you or i buy flour we buy it usually in two kilogram bags so you know uh, robin hood ran out of the two kilogram yellow yellow bags just like we ran out of uh, milk cartons 12 12 dozen milk cartons so there were you know there was these really you know peculiar bottlenecks opening up that we had to grapple with in our supply chain. And that's, that's proven to be a little more difficult to deal with. Um, But again, that's a a fairly short term issue. And most of our inventories have in most stores have returned mostly to normal. It's not not perfect, but, um, but, but, you know, I, I was in no frills last week and there was lots of two kilogram bags of flour now. So that was, that was that system sort of coming back into normal.
1: I didn't realize that the government actually helped, by allowing stores to restock 24/7.
0: Yeah, that was an interesting one. So when, when the inventory crisis happened back in, in March and early April, uh, it was it was against the law. It was not according to usually municipal bylaws, but you know, some jurisdictions didn't let grocery stores to you know restock and reinventory at two o'clock in the morning. And so a couple of key jurisdictions like Toronto started allowing the trucks to get into the grocery stores essentially any hour of the day. And, and that was one of the things that helped bring inventories back to normal, you know, reasonably efficiently.
1: Now, do you think in general the government has been doing a good job and has been helpful as far as the food industry
0: goes? Well, I, we we have to then start thinking about the bigger term issues, and and I would say that the the short term buying issues and the reorganization of the supply chain, the government responded, I think in in most sectors in Canada, anyways, reasonably efficiently. I mean, we were we were making this up as we went, um, and responding very very quickly. So providing rent relief to to small entrepreneurs was was took a while in coming, but it it did arrive. Uh, providing the emergency benefit for workers that were laid off, especially the Mass layoffs in the restaurant industry was was really important. Um, the government has initiated a buyback program for food that's going to waste. Um, but then we get into the, the sort of the longer term issues, where where things are actually much more difficult to manage in the food system. And here we're talking largely about labor related issues. So the the challenge first of all of getting temporary foreign workers into our farms. And here we have to realize that we you know generally every year about sixty thousand people come to mostly to Ontario, but across the country, to work on our farms, and they mostly come from places like Latin America and the Caribbean, uh, you know, pruning apple orchards, harvesting strawberries, planting asparagus, these these sort of jobs. So early in the days, when there was a travel bans were initiated, it was really hard for people to actually get into the country, and they had to be quarantined, um, and now that they're here, uh, well we 've had the terrible situation of of our farm workers testing positive for covid and and a couple of Mexican uh, gentlemen died uh, last week or the week before uh, of covid um, and, and It really has exposed the challenge of of our dependence on temporary foreign workers to come in and run our farms. And then a similar but slightly different story happens in the meatpacking industry where, where some of the biggest hotspots of outbreaks of COVID in the country have been the workers in the meatpacking plants. And there was one period of time back about a month ago when close to 75% of Canada's beef processing was actually shut at one point uh, at, as plants really struggled to stay open as their workers were testing positive for, um, for the virus.
1: Yeah, no, on both those counts, the temporary workers, I was reading about how they're often jammed into one small house or something where they live together, cramped quarters, and that's one reason why the virus is spreading, because they're not given enough opportunity to practice social distancing, which I think also uncovers another problem, perhaps.
0: Yeah, no, I I, I agree with you. I mean... The government provided money to farmers to renovate dormitories to allow for social distancing. But you have to imagine that this was all happening in a very, very brief period of time back in, in March and April, where where suddenly farmers were having to say, okay, you know, here's a dormitory that, you know, has bunk beds in it and would take, you know, 20 people. Now we have to have two meters around each bed and a, and a partition in, the, in there. And so suddenly that, that dormitory, a had to be renovated very quickly, and B, uh, could only have a small fraction of the capacity. And the fact that we've seen recurring outbreaks in some um, some agricultural areas uh, of of people in these dormitories suggests that that transition wasn't all that successful. And it really does, I think what you're getting at is illustrate that some of the people we depend on the most to keep our food system running during this last couple months are also the least well-paid, the most precarious in terms of employment status or, and are often in terms of precarious in terms of immigration status. So it kind of exposes a real, a real challenge that runs right through the food system about, about how we treat labor.
1: And, and still, because I was just reading that and there were another 98 cases in Leamington over the weekend reported among the migrant workers. And what, what are we doing? Well, we're obviously doing something wrong, but what are we doing right
0: well, in this case I think what we're talking about is is that COVID has exposed what uh, an economist or a sociologist might call a structural weakness in our system that we are dependent on low-paid or relatively low-paid migrant workers to keep our food system running. And um and we, you know, I I, I don't I think I think cases of neglect or exploitation are relatively rare thankfully. And uh, generally, the conditions that these people are living in when they come to our country are, you know, in in fairly, fairly rudimentary dormitories. And that is not a good place to allow for social distancing. And, and you might even say that in some cases it's not a not a particularly dignified situation at all. Um, so so I think I think this is this is one of these issues that's really exposed a fundamental problem or inequality. And, uh, you know, I'm not blaming farmers and I'm not blaming the farm community. I'm not blaming anybody here, but we do find ourselves in a, in a tough situation where we have to acknowledge the fact that, um, our food system and the, the cheap, uh, affordable food that m- you and I enjoy that's produced at a high quality and is generally pretty nutritious, uh, and pretty affordable is also, fundamentally rooted on a, a, a labor supply that, that doesn't get paid very well and is is not treated in a super super great way.
1: And even still on that note, there are a lot of farmers as I understand who have had the same workers come for years and suddenly they have crops that needed to be tended to and they don't have that those same workers who know their crops intimately. Who-
0: yeah, no, you're, you're right. Like this, this, <laughs> this, this, is bad for farmers. This is bad for workers. This is bad for oh. everybody. Um, so I, I mean, I know, I know I've got friends that, that have, you know, have had the same families coming and working for them for 10, 15 years. And we have to realize that from a, from the perspective of, of say a family in, in Latin America or the Caribbean, having some of their their family members come to Canada and work for four months is a really important source of of income for them. And a huge amount of the money that these folks earn in Canada is what's called remitted or sent back home, where it's a vital supply of, of, of funds. So, you know, they're dependent on us, we're dependent on them, but fundamentally... That, you know these aren't great jobs that aren't great paid and um <laughs> yet yet we're still dependent on both sides of the equation are still dependent on this system so getting ourselves out of this situation is is going to be very tricky
1: now you also touched upon the beef farmers and and also you know that that's got to be really tough i mean they had a dump uh, in terms of the dairy farmers and just thinking of cows <laughs> they had a dump tons of milk and and um yeah what's the update there that's that's got to be quite a hit
0: yeah again my, my my heart goes out out to these folks and 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 you know we find ourselves in a in a really tricky situation and and like i said although for most urban consumers things have progressed fairly normally not normally but fairly normally um from a farm perspective and a labor perspective, things are really, really tough. So let's just break apart dairy versus, versus beef, because there, there are differences. The big challenge with the dairy industry was, um, uh, well, there's been a bunch of challenges, but one of the key ones was when the coffee shops and the restaurants closed, whole supply chains had to reorganize and reorient towards selling through grocery stores. And that resulted in a lot of waste um, and milk being dumped and, and things like that. And that's where the packaging issue we talked about a few minutes ago comes in and, and that's where the French fries getting, getting wasted because there's no market for them come, come into play. The beef industry is a little bit different in that the challenge there was the there's about three or four very, very large beef processing plants um, across Canada. Most of them are, are sort of centered in the prairies where, where the vast majority of our beef is, is processed. And in those situations, those plants struggled to stay open, largely for the similar reasons we were just talking about the migrant workers. It's very hard to social distance on a beef cracking uh, processing facility. Uh, the workers started testing positive quickly. And, and again, we see a, 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 a labor-related issue. These people are not super well paid. It's not terrible, but it's not really well paid. They're largely um, new Canadians. In in Alberta, it was largely the Philippine community that was affected because they work at this plant, this Cargill plant. And, and and as soon as those people started testing positive and the plants closed, then not only was that terrible for those workers and dangerous for those workers, it also meant that the farmers no longer had a way of selling into a market. And 75% of Canada's um, beef packing industry is essentially run by a, a handful, five or six um, plants and, and they closed. Uh, so the farmers then str- scrambled and, and they had to, um, you know, euthanize animals, in know, or- because there's animals being born all the time. And if you can't sell into the market, then you quickly have a, a, the backlog builds up real fast. And so that has become a real hard challenge for farmers uh, that have lost income because they don't have a market to sell into. And then they've had to euthanize animals. And that will probably cause a decline in our beef um, herd for probably two or three years, because it takes a while once you've reduced your herd it takes a while to build it back up and that's definitely hurt farm incomes um, in a in a very significant way so that's a that's another element of this problem that's that's actually proving to be really really hard to manage
1: two or three years oh my goodness did they they had to eliminate some of their cows I I imagine
0: yeah generally what you generally what a farmer would do is if they can't sell into a market, they might euthanize younger animals that aren't ready for market yet because they run out of space to to store them. Um, and then that's what creates this this lag is that you've then taken out early younger animals, uh, reduced your herd size, and it then takes time to build build herd sizes back up. Um, and that's you know that's particularly pre- prevalent in, in the beef industry, but also to a lesser extent the pork industry. Chicken also experienced a problem, but because chickens are such fast-lived animals, you can build inventory back up very quickly on chickens.
1: How long does a chicken live on average?
0: Uh, broiler hens would, uh, you know, uh, from hatching to, to slaughter would be uh, six or seven weeks. So, you know, 50, 40 to 50 days would generally be the, the amount of time it takes uh, a, a, a chicken that you'd put, you know, make a roast chicken out of to bring from um, a, a hatched egg into a, into a market ready bird. Whereas it would take closer to two years uh, for a cow.
1: Lifespans.
0: Yeah, we, very, very quick. I mean, this is we've bred very, very, very fast breeding, uh, fast growing animals, especially in chickens.
1: Have you any idea what's happening with the Cargill plant? Because they were really hard hit. Weren't they early on with COVID?
0: Yeah, so the Cargill plant was was interesting in that um, there was a series of problems. One that the plant was just outside of town. And so workers typically were bust there. And then when they got on the plant, it was very hard to socially distance, which is sort of these two things, the the close proximity of workers on the line and then the busing, both seems to have been reasons why that particular community was hard hit. So it, it closed and it opened, it was closed for, I can't remember, I think it was about two to three weeks. I, I think this was in April. Um... Sorry, like all of us, I'm having trouble remembering dates at this period of time. But it was, you know, April May is when when that part of the story was unfolding. They reopened with with a lot of public with a lot of health and safety um, uh, measures in place. So the buses, for instance, were retrofitted so that there was plexiglass between um, between seats, and they they staggered entrances. Uh, they staggered um, or slowed down people coming in and off of shifts. Um, to stagger people moving through doorways. They, they reduced the speed of the lines. So overall, this has had the effect of making the productivity go down and the efficiency of those plants go down. They're, in pra- they're processing fewer cows per day. Um, but I haven't heard of problems since those public health measures were enacted. Uh, so, I am I mean, I'm touching wood as I'm talking here, but I'm I'm thinking that since there hasn't been any problems since then, that they're managing this situation, uh, albeit with lower productivity and lower efficiency, which, which will translate into higher costs, presumably for consumers.
1: Now, have you any idea? You mentioned it's going to be a couple of years, but how long until you, well, you know, we don't know. There's so many unknowns because we don't, we're in phase two or when are we going to be in phase three? When are we... And when can plants operate again at full full force? Like, how long is it going to take? Do you think?
0: Well, it's. I mean, as you just said, I mean, no, no one knows, and we're we're not really working on a playbook that anyone has 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 established. Um, my my guess is that if this proceeds or progresses for very much longer, um, and certainly doesn't look like anything's going back to quote normal anytime soon, that there will be a strong incentive for companies like Cargill and I don't have any prior knowledge of this. I'm just, I'm simply speculating here, but companies like Cargill to, um, to start investing in greater automation. And I'm, I'm going to guess, and this will be have good and bad aspects to it. I'm going to guess that there will be a real push towards automating across the food system and reducing labor in the food system. And, um, and we already know that tools like robotics and artificial intelligence are starting to play a bigger role in our food system. Um, I, I'm guessing that that, you know, very low interest rates that make it attractive for a company to perhaps take out a capital invest, do some capital investments in retrofitting, plus uh, this vulnerability to labor will will create a, a real incentive to automate our our food system to a, a larger extent. And, and like I said, I'm not I'm not saying that that's the way I, I want things to go, but that's, I think, a, a trend that I, we're probably going to see unfold in the next you know, months or or maybe a couple of years to come, um, and and it will it will mean that there's less less labor in our food system.
1: You're listening to Moment of Truth on 106.5 Elements FM in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses. Evan Fraser is professor and director of the Arrow Food Institute and Tier One Canada Research Chair in Global Food Security at the University of Guelph. We'll be back after this.
0: Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element,
1: Element, Element FM. Welcome back to Moment of Truth on Element FM 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa, and on the Radio Player Canada app. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses along with my guest, Evan Fraser from the University of Guelph. Evan, what do you think we have learned? You, you mentioned quite a few things already, but in the big picture overall, what would you say are three of the key learning outcomes we've had so far from this whole experience?
0: Well, the first one is actually, Catherine, one that we haven't talked about. And, and I think one of the biggest effects of COVID on the food system isn't actually our ability to process Food or our ability to produce food, like the things we talked about before the break, but is actually the effect of COVID on people's food security, and in particular, when people have lost their wages, have seen their jobs vanish, um, and 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 already we're seeing major increases in indicators of food insecurity across Canada and internationally. And in Canada, we see um, food bank use skyrocketing and. All all over the country, Uh, Statistics Canada released um, uh, some data on food insecurity just a couple of weeks ago, where they were suggesting a forty percent rise in food insecurity compared to this time last year. Uh, And then at the at the global level, folks such as the um, uh, organizations such as the World Food Program, which is the United Nations' uh, main body that delivers, say, food relief to famine in famine situations, is is saying that the there's going to be a doubling of acutely hungry people on the planet and um, even said that, you know, the world faces the risk of quote famines of biblical proportions. And this is all associated with the fact that COVID-19 is not only affecting our ability to produce and process and distribute food. It's also really having a horrible impact on people's ability to buy food from the market. And, and I think, I think that's one of the the biggest and slightly less discussed issues that we're, we're facing in, in this situation. So that's, that's my first thing that I think, I think we're, we have to acknowledge is, is that. The second one is related to what we talked about before, which is the fact that the people we depend on most for our food security, whether they're stocking grocery store shelves or running abattoirs or driving trucks around, are the least paid and the most at risk of the virus. And the third thing sort of relates to another thing we were talking about before the break. I I think there will be a strong imperative or a strong incentive to invest in technological solutions uh, to find, to say, reduce labor in in the system. And that'll have some good aspects to it, but it'll also have some negative consequences that we need to manage. And
1: we're talking about food insecurity, and it it just seems so strange that we're dumping a whole bunch of food and at the same time people are starving, they can't get enough food. Where do you see a solution?
0: Well, I mean, there's a policy set of policy solutions that are out there and and I think the federal government and the provincial government have done what they can with the tools available to them. Um, So for instance, the government is now buying uh, food that can't find markets and attempting to redistribute it into emergency food aid, so essentially, purchasing food, like potatoes that aren't going to use <laughs> because we don't, aren't buying p- potato We're chips. We're terrible.
1: Aren't we eating all that, those French fries?
0: Well, maybe there's some public public positive health implications of, out of this, but there's Absolutely. a lot of food, a lot of food waste. And, and the government is trying to direct that food waste into emergency food aid. So, so that's, that's positive. Another, another important aspect which you can do better nationally than say internationally is things like the emergency benefit package to keep people's wages at a point where they can af- continue to afford food. While we hope that the recovery to the economy continues apace and, and we can get back to reasonable levels of, or you know, lower levels of, of unemployment. So those are, those are, those are definitely things that, um, are being, are being done right now. Um, could we do more certainly, but, but I think we're doing Pretty well, given the speed at which we've had to respond. Um, I think there's a strong, probably strong call for um, universal basic income to come out of this. Uh, that we, we we live in a society that is deeply inequitable, and we need we need structures to reduce that inequality, and and maybe a universal basic income is is the sort of method or a sort of policy so I think there's a bunch of stuff we can do from a policy perspective that we can and should be doing and and in some sense are I think there's like we've alluded to a few times I think there's technological solutions where we can try to invest in technologies to say reduce the dependency that we have on labor um, uh, within the meatpacking plants and the asparagus growing operations it's Not simple to find technologies and, and and we have to think about how farmers are going to afford them and what that 's going to do to small farmers who maybe can 't afford technologies so it's not, nothing comes for free, but I think there are probably some technological solutions and um, and, and I bet industry then sort of picks things up and does and, and, and runs with some of those and then I think um, I think consumers have to do their part, and we need to probably reorient our buying and especially those of us who are perhaps um, have the privilege of being a bit wealthier. We need we need to be putting our money where our mouth is and 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 supporting, you know, lo- local and Canadian producers a little bit better than maybe we have.
1: Well, Evan, you're working on a campaign growing stronger, aiming for resilience in our Canadian food system. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, thanks for thanks for inviting me to chat about that. So early in the process, uh, I was on the call on calls with a bunch of industry and NGO experts and civil society members. And, and, and it really was, was sort of a, a collective sense that there was a moment to learn something about our food system, pause, reflect on it, maybe make some recommendations. So um, the organization that I'm the director of the Aral Food Institute, at the university of Guelph and a part uh, has partnered with another organization called the Canadian agri-food policy Institute, CAPI. And so that these two organizations have, have, you know, we represent or we are networked into a pretty big section of Canada's food system. And we thought, well, let's let's run a three-part system or a three-part process over the next six months to learn lessons. And the first part, which is what we're in right now, is what we're calling our listening phase. And we're inviting Canadians of any sort, uh, any, any background, anybody with an opinion on food to, um, to, to write to us. And we've created a w- website off of the Arrow Food Institute's website, uh, and Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute's website to tell us what you think we should learn and what we've learned from the food system. Moving forward from that, we um, will spend the fall drilling into specific issues, hosting online forums and dialogues and webinars, and uh, really try to debate um, key themes and key proposals. And then uh, at the end of this year and next year, both the agri Food Institute and the Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute are hosting Events And they probably will be virtual events. Normally we would host in person conferences and and symposium and whatnot and summits. They will be virtual this year by because of the situation. But we will, you know, present final recommendations to government uh, using those two events as as sort of the vehicle. So we're listening, we're debating, we're synthesizing and making recommendations. And um, if any of your listeners want, uh, feel free to reach out. And um, it's the growing stronger program run by the Canadian Agri-Food Policy Institute and the Errol Food Institute.
1: What is the website if we want to take part?
0: So if you look at uh it's the first link on the top of it. Or you can just Google Errol Food Institute Growing Stronger and you'll find it.
1: Okay, and that's a r r e l l foodinstitute.ca. Yep. Perfect. What kind of questions will we be asked if we join that link?
0: Well, there's really three questions that we are asking people, but we're letting people answer them in the way that feels most appropriate to their circumstances. What is the effect of COVID on our food system? That's question one. (laughs) Question two, how do you think we got to this situation where we've seen this big effect on our food system or, or why has this problem happened? So we're actually asking people not only to describe the problem, but to try to diagnose why that problem emerged. And then the third question, which is the most important is, um, what on earth should you, do you think we should do about this situation? What's the sort of recommendations that you would like to see us carry forward to government um, on behalf of uh, a wide range of of stakeholders and and players in the food system? What what do you think we need to do? And is that a a buy local campaign or is that an investment in technology or is that universal basic income to protect the marginal um, uh, consumers? We're, We're looking for people's recommendations. So what's happened? Why have we got there? And what should we do are the three basic questions.
1: You're asking the general public what happened.
0: (laughs) Well, we're asking people for their observations, right? I mean, I I, don't—I have my line of sight on my own personal experience, but I don't—I don't claim to have uh, claim to be able to speak for for all the varied experiences out there, and and we need to be able to listen to voices that maybe don't always get listened to in sort of official, you know, high-fluting policy dialogues, and so we're we're looking for people to give us their experiences or reflect with us on their experiences so that we're authentic to perhaps, you know, the, the voices that that we don't normally listen to.
1: Now you're also research care and global food security. What does that role entail?
0: So I have the great privilege of, of of having a position at the university of Guelph where I, I, I teach a few courses, but I spend a lot of my time, um, working on on questions like the ones we're discussing right now. So, I mean, prior to COVID, I was asking questions like, what is the effect of climate change on the food system? And how can we make the food system more resilient or robust? Or how do we deploy new technologies like artificial intelligence to promote food security and greater sustainability while maintaining a highly profitable and economically efficient food industry? Um, So those are the sort of questions that I've asked throughout my career. And I work with policymakers and I work with young people and I do a lot of work on education on these topics. Um, and COVID-19 has thrown a lot of these questions into relief uh, or has raised their importance in, in many ways. And so we're um, we're now asking these same set of questions, but, but largely with a, a COVID lens on them because that's, I mean, on one level I've been Absolutely amazed at how many impacts COVID has had on our food system and on and up, uh, the, the workers, the meat plant, plants, the food insecurity, and I've also been amazed at how quickly the grocery stores have been able to, to a large extent, respond pretty effectively. So I, I see that I see both the glasses half full and the glasses half empty at the same time here. And I'm I'm thinking that that this is a what an educator might call a teachable moment for society about It gives us a chance to reflect on all the great things we've done well and celebrate those in our food system during the most um, uh, serious uh, perturbation that we've had in in decades, um, as well as looking very carefully at what we need to do better in the future. What do you
1: think we should do on a local level? I'm just curious. On a local, I mean there's a lot we can do in the big picture, but just on our own little local level
0: well that's a really, really good question and i i th- I think at a local level uh, in the short term, supporting food banks and emergency food aid and um, local charities who are trying to keep people who have lost their jobs out of a situation of food insecurity is is a really important step and so in Guelph, we've got organizations like The Seed that, um, uh, and, 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 of course, our food bank that are really, really trying hard to do innovative things um, to get food into in the dignified, nutritious food uh, into people who are in extremely tough circumstances because they've lost their jobs or they've lost their businesses or they've been laid off or they've gotten sick. So that, that I think, is the, is the really immediate short-term thing. Um, In the the longer term, I think we do need to be thinking carefully about how we, I'm going to say reinvigorate our local food systems, Um, you know, our dependence on international labor, our dependence on the seamless trade of goods and services around the food, around the system, our dependence on highly concentrated systems, which have proven not particularly flexible, uh, is a vulnerability that I think we need to be working on. And so I think, I think uh, consumers need to be supporting more regional food systems with a greater percentage of their buying. I mean, we'll never, we'll never, I'm not suggesting we give up global food and we all eat a hundred mile diet, but I do think that we could, you know, shift some of our buying towards, towards more regional food systems and help reinvigorate our local and our regional production and processing capacity. And that doesn't have to be a hundred percent that way. It will always be doing global trade and global trade brings us lots of great things in food. But I think we also need to be shifting a percentage. I think for the young people out there, um, this is where I would really get excited. I think there are tremendous opportunities in agriculture and food that um, are very, very new and exciting that use cutting edge technologies like artificial intelligence and robotics. So if you're a young person thinking of entering, um, say, an aerospace engineering program, Well, there's actually more jobs doing uh, robotics in the greenhouse industry than there are in aerospace. So there's tremendous opportunities or database management or agronomy or environmental management, the huge suite of jobs that are opening up in the agri-food sector. And I I think this is a huge engine for economic opportunity for our country. I think it's a huge opportunity for good quality career paths for young people. And so I I get really excited when I think of what the future holds. in the sector and would highly encourage that um, people say in grade 12 or, or grade 11, thinking about university, that you think about uh, going into your chosen discipline, whatever field it is, but you think of applying that, those, that discipline in the broad area of agriculture and food. And that will be a key component of position in Canada to play a major leadership role as being a, um, a, a global leader in, in the food systems of tomorrow.
1: Well, Evan, thank you so much. Sounds like you're an amazing professor, and you're certainly amazing at what you do. Thank you.
0: Well, I appreciate the call, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk to your listeners. Thank you for calling, Catherine.
1: That's Evan Fraser. He's a professor and director of the Errol Food Institute and the Tier 1 Canada Research Chair in Global Food Security at the University of Guelph. I'm Kathy Sabokin. You've been listening to Moment of Truth on Element FM, 106.5 in Toronto, 95.7 in Ottawa.
0: Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element
1: FM. Welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm Kathy Sabokin, filling in for David Moses. Musician Carolina East grew up in Labrador before her family moved to South River Newfoundland. It's a small town near St. John's where she started singing at the age of 16. Her voice conveys natural warmth and honesty as well as amazing vocal power. You may have heard Carolina East on 106.5 Element FM in Toronto and 95.7 in Ottawa. She just released her new single, Soaked in Whiskey, and Carolina East joins me now for a catch-up from her home in St. John's. Welcome, Caroline.
2: I actually, I visited your station there a couple of years ago. Actually, about a year or so ago on my radio tour. So it's a pleasure to speak with you. I, I didn't meet you at the time.
1: No, I didn't meet you either. I know I know you were there, but you were there when I had already left, because I work really early mornings. I'm not musician times, you know? No, <laughs> that's true. That's definitely. Every musician I know, they kind of get up around noon and...
2: No, that's not me. I uh, I'm up late and up early. I'm always up with the birds. I find the the morning time. um, I find it really relaxing and it's very quiet and very calm. So usually, uh, yeah, I usually get up about seven a.m. every morning and I probably go to bed around two (laughs) a.m.
1: And then, when do you like to get your writing done?
2: Um, It's all over the place, really. Um, I find that I'm most creative in the nighttime, and I think a lot of a lot of musicians are probably the same in that sense. it's kind of a time where we can, uh, well, for me personally, it's a time where I kind of reflect on uh, what's been going on that day or that week or that month. Just, you know, it's, I can really kind of push everything out that's been going on in the day, like the busy work stuff and then focus on the, focus on the writing in the evening.
1: It's pretty awesome. Well, what's been happening on the rock? How has it been out there during the pandemic?
2: Oh man. Um, it's good. I mean, we're, we started off in a really rocky position. I think at one point we had um, the most cases per capita all throughout Canada. And that had to do with a, a situation at a, I think it was a funeral home. But now everything is tapered off. It's, you know, we're zero cases for almost a month now. Um, no access cases at all. So life is kind of picking up again slowly. But it's still very different and very weird. Normally this time of year, I've been, on, I would have been on the road now. Probably almost two months, going on three. So uh, I've never spent this long home in my life.
1: But how is that? Is that is that good? Is a little bit of downtime, a little more time for writing. Like, what are the positives?
2: I mean, it is. It's good. I, I get to spend um, a lot of time with my my family, which is a good thing. I guess I've learned how to use social media and how to you know use the live streams more in my favor. Um, we've been performing that way, doing like live streams on Facebook and Instagram and stuff like that. The writing, obviously there's lots of time to do the writing side of things, but to be completely honest, um, when this first started, I I really struggled. It was Groundhog Day. Every day was get up and just survive and, and make it to the next day kind of thing. And I know that sounds super dramatic, but it's just, it's the reality for me. Um, at that time, it was, it was difficult. So now I feel like... You know the clouds are parting, and we're we're able to kind of get back to some sort of normalcy, which is good.
1: Well, yeah, because all of a sudden, any of your touring stopped, everything just stopped suddenly, and it's it's a shock. Yeah, it's like okay, uh, now what? <laughs> now what happens?
2: Well, exactly, and it, it was it literally changed overnight. I remember I had plans; I was supposed to go to Toronto for um, this big thing that hasn't been announced yet, but that got changed in a second. We lost you know, so many tour dates and so many festival dates, all the revenue that would be associated with that. It was it was really difficult. And to add on top of that, just the worry of, of what was going on in the world as well, right? So I, I did, I struggled. And I know a lot of people, and I felt shame for that. I felt like this is a time where I should be gutting my house out, cleaning out all the closets, um, spring cleaning, painting the walls, doing all those things. And then professionally, I felt like, I should be performing more online. I should be more vocal on Facebook and Instagram. I should be writing more songs. And I just didn't, I couldn't do it. I, I, had, I felt so embarrassed that I wasn't doing those things, but eventually I just had to say, just take the breathing room. You know, I guess
1: like you're this. doing what you needed to do, even though maybe you didn't think that's what you needed to do. Is probably what you needed to do. Absolutely. Just takes yeah. the breathing so, space.
2: Yeah. So, what, so much change so quickly, right? So it's quickly. Yeah, my brain had to catch up with it, I guess.
1: But what is happening with your music? What's happening?
2: I had a great year. Um, you know, just a few months ago, I won the, uh, the Country Music Award here at Muse Canal.
1: Yeah, congratulations. Um, That's so fantastic.
2: Thank you so much. Yeah, I appreciate that. I you appreciate won
1: another it. award, too.
2: This year, I was nominated for the uh, East Coast Music Award for Indigenous Artists of the Year. And we don't find out about that until I think it's mid July. They're going to they're gonna do a virtual award show. But yeah, that was that's great. I've I uh, released my first single this year with "All the Fool Who Loves You." I believe you guys have played that quite a bit, and I certainly appreciate it. And I'm getting ready to release my next single, "Soaked in Whiskey," on Thursday.
1: I love that title, "Soaked in Whiskey."
2: Yeah, thank you. I appreciate that. That uh, that came up in a conversation, and it just it's one of those things that just stuck. I thought it was a cool idea.
1: You know, I just wonder, I actually lived in Newfoundland just for a year. I worked in radio there and I just loved the music community. I was out on George Street every day. I was actually a singer myself. So I was singing on George Street in the little bars. It was so much fun. Such a great community. How's that experience for you being a musician on the rock? What's the scene like there these days?
2: As you know, Newfoundland and Labrador, the, the music is one of the biggest parts of our culture. And it's no exception for me, of course. I grew up in a musical family. My father is very musical, and my my uncles and and aunts are very, you know very intertwined in that whole thing. And I actually started playing on George Street when I was sixteen years old. So for those people that don't know, George Street is this street that has a million bars, or like twenty five something like that. Um, but it has the most bars per capita in in uh, North America. Uh, and there's no traffic. It's just all foot traffic. So I started playing there at sixteen years old. And I, I would play five, six, sometimes seven nights a week, sometimes you know, eight, 12 hours a day, depending. Um, but I was doing all cover music. And I loved it and I learned how to sing and I learned how to perform and how to entertain a crowd. But um, eventually I found that like I'd be doing these gigs and I'd just be watching TV, like the TV that was in the back of the bar and I wouldn't really be paying attention to what I was doing anymore. I was starting to lose interest in the cover scene. So it was then that Carolina East was born. I met um, in 2016. I met up with um, a gentleman named Rob Wells and his wife Shoba. They're based out of Toronto. Actually, you might know the name. He's worked with artists like Ariana Grande, Justin Bieber, Nick Lachey. Ninety degrees. Like the list goes on. Just, California. just
1: small artists, no one's heard of.
2: Yeah, you know, you might have heard of him. You might have not. I don't know. It's one of those, you know, things that. <laughs> um, but yes, yeah, so he was down here doing a. Uh, Keynote speaker, him and his wife were keynote speakers at the Music and Awards, and um, which is our the Newfoundland Grammys. So to speak. And um, I was the staff at the time with the with Music NL and L, um, and I just had to pop in uh, one of the venues and just to make sure that the open mic was going well. And when I walked in, everybody was like, "Oh, you got to get up!" and they were cheering and you know, twist my rubber arm, get me on a stage. So I jumped up and I sang. I think what should have been two songs. I ended up staying up there for an hour and a half. And um, shortly after that, Rob said, listen, we need to work together. And I've heard that before from people that have heard me saying on George Street or wherever, and, and nothing ever comes to fruition. But luckily with this, it did. And uh, we've been working together ever since. And since then, to tie it back to George Street, uh, I made a decision not to, um, not to play on George Street so much. I wanted to focus more on my own music and travel and you know, always keep that in the back of my mind because, of course, I wouldn't be able to do this if I hadn't started out at George Street, but it certainly was a good stepping stone. But uh, I'm on now to do, you know i want to I want to travel and and perform in as many places outside of Newfoundland as I can.
1: Yeah, have you done a lot of touring outside of Canada?
2: I haven't done a lot out of Canada. I've done I've crossed Canada three times though over the last three years. The goal well, this year was actually to it was to go cross over to the states. I was supposed to play the Philadelphia Folk Festival, but unfortunately that all got cancelled, but hopefully next year, you know, we're, there's always next year or the year after, and we'll, we'll figure it out. I'm, I'm very hopeful and positive that uh, when the time is right, we'll get to cross over the border for sure.
1: Yeah, now just a side question, we know you're an Indigenous artist, and, yeah. and we're hearing more Indigenous artists, with which I think is great, there's so many great artists out there. What are your thoughts? Do you think we're moving in the right direction? Or do you find you're getting more airplay, more attention?
2: Absolutely. I think um, the moment that, so I was late finding out that I was, um, that I had an nice indigenous background with Mi'kmaq here in Newfoundland and Labrador. I only found out about, I think it was eight or ten years ago.
1: Yeah, how, how did um, you find out?
2: It, it's, a, it's a very interesting story, actually. Um, if you look at me, like I have blonde hair, blue eyes, um, a pretty fair complexion. So you would never suspect that there would be, um, you know, any variations of, of cultures in my body. <laughs> but, um, my cousin, Erica, she's got the beautiful skin tone and the long dark hair, she's, you know, and they were living in Goose Bay at the time. My uncle was a Supreme Court judge in Goose Bay. And um, the chief down there came up to my, my cousin and he said, um, you, you're one of us. And she didn't quite understand what he meant. And then when he explained, he said, you are, you're one of my people it kind of got our wheels turning going like, you know, we do have a background in St. George's, Newfoundland, Labrador, which is, it's a very, uh, that's very indigenous culture there. So my aunt Carmel started to dig in and and try to find out where our, you know, our family line stemmed from. And sure enough, we found out that we were, we were of big, Law descent and it was beautiful. It was a gift that we're all so grateful for and especially me. I've struggled with it a little bit, to be honest, because I, Not the fact that I am, you know, Indigenous, but the fact that some people have found it very hard to accept me into the culture, given the fact that I, you know, I do have blonde hair and blue eyes and and fair skin. But I take that as an opportunity to teach people that, you know, you you need to accept people no matter what. It doesn't, you know, things don't, aren't always so, you know, so black and white. It just, it just, there's variations. So I've taken that upon myself to, um, to reach out to people here in Newfoundland. In Labrador and encourage them to look into their bloodlines and also I encourage them to kind of to dive into the indigenous music as well. It's
1: a great story what a surprise.
2: I, I, I hold my indigenous culture so sacredly. I'm so honored to be a part of that that I almost felt embarrassed at times to be so fair-skinned and you know have blonde hair. I spoke to somebody in Calgary last year when I went I did World Indigenous Day Live in Calgary last year and I had a little bit of a moment before I went on stage, and I don't even know the gentleman's name, but he was in—he was in full. It was his, his outfit was just mind-blowingly beautiful, and he came up to me and he said, um, "I see that you're carrying something heavy." He said, "Would you like? Would you like to talk more or less?" And I just—I, you know—I opened up my heart to him, and he—he he was so accepting, and I'll never forget that—that that moment. Kind of changed how I felt about this whole thing and, and he, he made me see that it was actually, it's a gift that I could give to other people to open up their their eyes and their mind and their heart to uh, to this culture as well. It was a beautiful, it was one of the most beautiful moments I've ever had.
1: That's I a, had it's a great story. Yeah,
2: I mean, it's the first time I've told it actually.
1: It's so my <laughs> yeah, honored now. to hear it, yes. And right. especially at this time when there's so much going on with the anti-racism protests and yeah. you know, it, it's just, that's a heartwarming story
2: such a beautiful moment he He took a feather out of his, out of his headpiece it was a small feather, probably six inches long and he gave it to me and he said, now you're part of my family and I still have that feather to this day. I have it in my room I have it in a in a shadow box and I look at it almost you know every day just kind of as a reminder because I like, you know we all, we all do belong in, in this in this world in whatever capacity. so that was that was one of the most beautiful moments for me that I've ever had.
1: Oh, well, that does sound great, it makes me yeah. want to cry.
2: Oh, was, yeah, it was crazy. I had to get my makeup done again. I had to go back to hair and makeup and be like, can you fix my eyelashes? I'm like, oh, <laughs> And gosh.
1: how could you sing? I was trying to, if exactly I'm too emotional, more, I can't. I, I
2: think, yeah, it gave me more, um, I think it, it filled my heart so much that it um, it gave me more of a ability to, to perform better. So I don't know, I don't know that gentleman, I, I can't remember his name, but he certainly, he certainly changed my life at that moment
1: just for a three minute conversation. Isn't it funny? We, we never know what kind of an effect we're having on another human being or vice versa. Yeah. It can yeah. be the smallest thing. Someone might smile at you in the elevator or in the grocery store. And it's like, just lifts the spirit. So something you like that is, is, is magnificent. I love that.
2: Oh, yeah, it's so true. And it's again, like it, it stuck with me. So it's, I mean, it's just like it happened yesterday. There's, it, it, it was a beautiful moment, I must say. It definitely was.
1: And then going back to the music, my mm. original question there about Indigenous music Story. as a whole. No, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, hey, um, yeah, just wondering where you think this is going. Are we doing better?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I look at the um, just in the three years that I've been a part of the of, of the Indigenous music scene. The, the growth and the creativity that's coming from it is absolutely mind-blowing. Um, I see a lot of crossover artists right now as well, which is, is huge in the music scene, um, where you know, people are, are including parts of their culture into pop music or rap music or country music. Um, and you know indigenous artists are finally getting the recognition that they deserve. There's a ways to go, but it's certainly, it's moving in the right direction and it's moving quickly.
1: Now, what are your thoughts on removing the Indigenous category from the Junos and just blending the Indigenous artists in with all the other artists?
2: I don't think I don't agree with that, and uh, the reason, my personal opinion on that, if whether people agree or not, is um, Indigenous artists have fought so hard to be heard, um, and musically, and of course in every other aspect as well, but specifically towards the music that I think, based on the based on our ability to fight and persevere and keep pushing and keep pushing. I think that that alone is reason to keep that uh, you know, that category there. Um, I feel like every Indigenous person should be lifted up um, in in the music scene for sure because it's not easy. A lot of these, you know, a lot of Indigenous artists live on reserves and they don't have the access to the internet or um, like we do and, and I feel like that's a shame but somehow they figure it out and then we were given this beautiful song right in our lap, and I feel like that should be 100% celebrated in its own category.
1: Absolutely.
2: Yeah, definitely.
1: So is Newfoundland in phase two now of the uh, pandemic reopenings? Is Newfoundland in phase two?
2: Well, actually, tomorrow is my it's my niece's grad. She's graduating grade 12, so um, we're having a big uh, socially distant. Uh, outdoor garden party for her, um, but honestly, I'm still wrapping my head around the <laughs> level three. I have a lot of anxiety around this whole situation, around the whole pandemic, and um, I'm gonna ease myself back into, you know, into the. I can't, I can't do the mall thing yet. I, I yeah, I'm just, I'm really easing myself into it all. I,
1: yeah there are there are a lot of people I talk to I have family members who don't want me to visit them I know there's still that fear out there that concern that yeah that's yeah I mean I'm afraid to go on a plane because I don't want to get off the plane with the virus
2: yeah I'm I'm the same way and it's just like I don't know I don't know how I'm gonna get past that because obviously flying is such a huge part of being a musician a touring musician but I don't know, we'll figure it out one day at a time.
1: <laughs> yeah, and I and we'll see what the airlines are gonna do too. Because hopefully they're yeah, gonna make think, it safer for us to fly so we feel more comfortable flying.
2: Yeah, hopefully they'll, they'll space out the, the flights more. And I don't know, I, I think I'm gonna have to, hopefully I'm gonna be able to leave um, and go to Halifax, I'm hoping um, the end of August. So I'll, uh, I'm hoping at that point things are gonna be a lot more comfortable, but you never know.
1: Unless you get fogged in.
2: Well, that could happen. That's very likely to happen, to be quite honest.
1: Do you ever host kitchen parties?
2: But yeah, I mean, a kitchen party in Newfoundland is just a party in general. It's for whatever reason, um, any house parties always find their way to the kitchen. But that uh, every party I've ever had or been to, you can guarantee there's a kitchen party. <laughs>
1: Well, I hope one day I'd love to come to Newfoundland. The next time I'm there, I'd love to go to a kitchen party. If you're performing, especially because your voice is just killer. It's
2: great. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And listen, when you're in Newfoundland, we'll, uh, we'll do lunch. We'll, we'll go on George Street. We'll do all kinds of fun things.
1: You're on. Um, listen, I'm all
2: there. And it.
1: you heard it. You heard her say that. You heard her give me <laughs> the invitation. I'm going to go and we'll have a good time. Well, Carolina, thank you so very much for your time.
2: Thank you so much for having me. And again, when I'm in Toronto, I'd love to see you as well. So hopefully that's sooner than later.
1: Yes, please do stop by and hopefully things will have improved greatly by then.
2: Um, but yeah, if anybody wants to check out my Instagram or my Facebook, it's just Um on both those things. So I'd love, uh, I'd love to see you guys.
1: Thanks so much, Caroline.
2: Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Thank you. Bye.